Hello everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the artistic side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host. I'm recording today on the first day of summer, officially, out here in Iceland. It's the 20th of April, it's a holiday every year, so I have the day off work. I thought it might be a nice time to get this uh, episode in the can. I have a good game to talk about today. I'm going to talk about Tron Identity, an interesting visual novel that cropped up recently by the Bithel Studio in the Tron universe, of which I am a big fan. Um, I remember the original Tron movie. Um, I still am in love with that visual style. It's just real classic visual style. So I'm always happy to stick my nose into the Tron universe and see what's going on. And we have a new game to try out. So I'll be talking about that one today. Um, There's also been a bit of news this week. There was a Nintendo Indie World Showcase, um, so I'll run through that as well. Um, And I've got a few new games to add to the reviews slate. Um, Horizon Burning Shores just came out, and I've been playing a little bit of that, so let's start with that. Um, This is the DLC for Horizon Forbidden West. Um, Not much was known about it other than it's set in LA, and it has a few new characters, etc. Um, I've been looking forward to this one because the Frozen Wilds, the DLC for Horizon Zero Dawn, was a really good DLC. It's a DLC of legend in my mind. It's like a whole new slice of game, a really sizable chunk of map. Um, That one introduced a new tribe and it had a different kind of topography. It had very, very deep snow Um, and it had a really nice, it had new music and had just a really nice expansion to the game. It was one of those DLC where you feel that the studio has gone ahead and made the game and they've learned a lot doing so and they have pulled all of the lessons that they learned all the best parts the things they liked the most and turned it into this extra bit on the end of the game and my first impressions of burning shore are pretty good um it's a separate play area this time so you kind of go and chat to silence and he's like yep yeah, burning shores you're gonna have to head down there there's a bad guy down there that you have to go and get um and you can select you can choose whether you want to run around on the forbidden west map a little more or whether you want to fly down to this new play area where the entire DLC takes place. It's a bit different, I guess, from Frozen Wilds, which was attached to the main map. This is a whole separate piece of map, but it's a fairly sizable chunk of map. If you've played Forbidden West, it's about the size of the Daunt, um, alongside the whole area where Plainsong is, and the rocky, um, what's it called again, Barren Barren Light area below that as well. So it's about, I would say, like 20% to a quarter of the Forbidden West map. Um, There are new characters, um, there's a new faction that you can talk to, and pretty much right off the bat in this game, there were apex machines for you to go and fight in pretty interesting combinations. So some of the major machines that you would usually find stomping around by themselves, like the Slaughter Spine, this giant dinosaur, um, looks like a Stegosaurus, I think. Um, You'll find that in combination with other scout machines and other fast attacking machines. So the combat has definitely been ramped up. It's definitely good late game combat content. Um, And I just slipped straight back into the um, the rhythm of playing that game. I absolutely love in Horizon the the way that the weapon wheel works, the way that the slowing down time works. Um, In this game, you can use your stamina and valor to do special attacks. Um, You're always switching between weapons, crafting ammo on the fly, trying to take cover, trying to hide, run away, go into stealth, um, come at the enemy again. Um, The combat is just absolutely wonderful. It's a new chunk of story. I absolutely love Horizon. I love playing as Aloy. Um, So good first impressions of this DLC. 
it is such a beautiful world and it's just so nice to have an excuse to go back into that world and run around. I'm taken aback constantly by the graphics, by the, the rolling tide, the ocean, the sun-dappled streams, the butterflies, the particles in the air, the dynamic lighting and clouds and just the detail. Um, the frame rate is through the roof. It's just so buttery smooth and so detailed and colourful. The design of the game is just wonderful. So I'm really happy to be back in that game again. I actually did have it preloaded and I played it at midnight when it came out, which is something that I don't do very often, but it's a tradition at this point for me to be overexcited about New Horizon content. Um, I have also added a new game to the slate, to the review slate, Shadows Over Loathing. This is the sequel to West of Loathing, the, the Stickman comedy game, um, and this is a bigger version of it. This is an RPG version. Um, I don't know exactly how much RPG is in there, but I have heard some positive reviews of this one. Um, it's out on Switch. It was released during the Direct, so that one's been added to my review slate as well. I'm looking forward to giving that a try. And the Direct itself was pretty packed, actually. It wasn't like a load of uh, well-known big games, although it was an excuse for Hollow Knight Silksong people to pull on their clown shoes once more in the hope of some news and the hope of a release date. I've got a feeling that when we do hear about Silksong, it won't be via Nintendo, seeing as it's coming to Game Pass Day 1 and all of that stuff. Uh, but the poor old Silksong fans didn't get anything, so shout out to Gaming in the Wild patron soccer. Your day will come. Uh, but there were 21 games in here, some of which I'd heard of, some of which I hadn't. I'm going to run through a few of them. Um kind of in date order. So some of them had loose dates. There was a game called Brotato. It was the first that I'd seen of that one. It looks like a vampire survivors kind of game, but mixed with cartoony, nobody saves the world, uh, crowd control gameplay, uh, ridiculous overpowered weapons. People were pretty excited about that one. There has been a wave of vampire survivors likes. Um, I'm not sure what we're calling that genre yet. There was reverse bullet hell, um, there were a couple of other ones that I'm forgetting now, uh, but Brotato is one of those, and that's penciled for 2023. Um, there was a 2024 game, another very loose release window, for Little Kitty Big City. This is the cartoony cat exploration game uh, where you're running around a city, you're climbing, you're knocking things over. Looks a little bit like Untitled Goose Game kind of vibe, except you're controlling a cat. Um, and we saw how crazy... Uh, the internet went over both Goose Game and the last cat game, Stray. Um, so if you put those two together, um, you get Little Kitty Big City. I'm not sure how good this one's going to be. I can't quite get a read on it from the gameplay that we saw, um, but certainly interested. That's coming out in 2024. Um, there was a new game announcement, Blasphemous 2. Um, I have dipped into Blasphemous. I didn't really get very far. It was a bit hard for me, actually, um, but I do want to go back to it. I love the visual style. I love the design of it. It's very gothic, um, religious pixel art imagery, like a hanging crucified people and um, monks that will take a swing at you. It's got a little bit of that Elden Ring energy in it, and that one is penciled for summer of this year, so coming up quite soon. Um, there were some things that had release dates too. There's an expansion for Cult of the Lamb coming in just a few days on April 24th. It's called The Relics of the Old Faith. It is an expansion rather than DLC, so I had a look at what's in this packet, because I would love an excuse to go back into Cult of the Lamb. Um, I think it scraped into my Games of the Year list last year um, in the honourable mentions. And this is not so much a DLC. It has new versions of bosses, uh, more items, and a new side quest. But that's one of those sort of weak source editions that I don't, I'm not sure it's enough to make me download it again and go back in. I feel like I've finished that game, and unless there are you know, several new dungeons or more interesting stuff than decorations and new versions of bosses that I've already fought... Um, I was a little disappointed by that one. The studio has promised to support Cult of the Lamb, so maybe there is more to come. 
Um, Oxenfree 2 got a date. This the long-awaited, long-delayed sequel to the classic indie game Oxenfree. That's coming on the 12th of July. That will be coming to Netflix. And um, so that's where I will be playing it as the studio Night School was bought by Netflix. It's the first studio that Netflix has bought. That's interesting. There was a new trailer for it. It didn't really show us too much. We're still using the tuning through radio waves to try and open rifts. Um, it has that cool prismic distortion on the graphics that give it this otherworldly sort of feel to it. Very strange music. The atmosphere was great in Oxenfree and the story was great. Um, so I'm not sure what I'm thinking about Oxenfree 2 right now. I don't know if the moment has passed for that game and that style of gameplay, um, but I will certainly give it a try, especially because it's on Netflix. That's the 12th of July. There was an interesting looking puzzle game called Paper Trail. It reminded me a little bit of Carto, that cool game where you're arranging uh, tiles onto a map and then the landscape generates based on how you've arranged things. So you can position a lake next to a river, etc. Then you get to walk through that landscape. In Paper Trail, you are folding paper to re reveal pathways that you can use to navigate around obstacles. So it's a logical tile-based puzzle game with an origami kind of feel to it. That's coming in August. Also in August, uh, Bomb Rush Cyberpunk. Was it Cyberpunk? No, it was Cyberfunk, I think. This is a fast-paced skating game. Um, not exactly my cup of tea, but I know that some people were excited for that one. That's 18th of August. There was also an interesting looking game called Chance of Sanar coming out on September the 5th. This is an isometric stealth game set within a cult. It has the that style that we've grown accustomed to calling the Sable art style now. Um, sort of line-drawn, cel-shaded, bright colours. Um, it looks like you're creeping through a cult compound, uh, crouching behind walls, trying not to get spotted ringing bells to distract guards, that kind of thing. Stealth gameplay isn't my favourite, but the art style and the setting look interesting on this one, so I'll be keeping an eye on that one. Chance of Senar. Um, there was some news on Minico's Night Market. I know a lot of people have been watching this one. It has an absolutely beautiful art style. Reminded me a little bit of um, The Wild at Heart. Very, very lush uh, graphic art style. That one's coming out on the 26th of September. But the big star of the show for me was a little bit more information about Animal Well, um, the super interesting pixel art Metroidvania-ish. This one seems like a hard one to actually pin down in an easy genre descriptor, uh, which could work for or against it. But this one has been penciled for a release window of winter 2023. And we've got some new text with it as well. I love hearing them try to describe this game. Um, while Because it seems to be a game about secrets, exploration, emergent gameplay, and unpredictable effects. So you're going through this. It's a side-on game. It's very dark, a black background with very bright pixel art that looks quite retro, but also quite stylish. Um, and there was a nice description of this one that came out in the direct. It says, Hatch from your flower and spelunk through the beautiful and sometimes haunting world of Animal Well, a pixelated wonder rendered in intricate audio and visual detail. Encounter lively creatures, small and large, helpful and ominous, as you discover unconventional upgrades and un unravel the well's secrets. This is a truly unique experience that can make you laugh in fear, surprise, or delight. Wonderful little piece of text, a great description for that one. I am very curious about what this game is going to be. Um, some people that have played it, that got hands-on with it at Day of the Devs last year, for example, have had really nice things to say about it, and they definitely felt that the draw of this game, it's an intriguing game, and it doesn't give up what it is and what the gameplay is going to be very easily, but every time I see it, I'm a little transfixed by it. So it's really great that Animal Well got a release window, winter of 2023. Um, so I think we can expect to see that one just before Christmas. 
Um, who knows, though, it may slip over into, into next year, but at least Animal Well is now on the horizon and has a release window. So that was the Nintendo Indie World Showcase for April. Um, some interesting games in there. I'll be keeping an eye on a whole bunch of those, and I'll be getting to Shadows Over Loathing. It's now on my list. Um, I'm plowing through the list. I'm, I'm, I'm getting through the reviews list for the podcast. Um, we've had Dredge, we've had Chia, we've had Terra Nil, some of the big indie games of the year that I was most excited about. Um, up for review soon. We still have Storyteller, Have a Nice Death, The Last Worker, Strayed Lights, and now Shadows Over Loathing. So that's my short list for the coming months. And before we get into the review of the show, let me just say a big thank you to the newest patron of the show, Matthew. Thank you very much, Matthew. Matthew signed up for the £3 tier to support the podcast. Um, I think I have 40 patrons now. We've just passed 40. And all of that money goes back into the podcast. It pays for the domain name. It helps me to upgrade my equipment here and there. I think I'm in the market for a new interface soon to try and get rid of some of the little pops and crackles that you might sometimes hear. Patrons also get a bunch of perks. You get an invite to our Discord server, which is the best place, the best little hidden corner of the internet to talk about games, if you ask me. You get um, a whole bunch of bonus episodes about music, video game music, off-topic subjects and that sort of thing. You get instant access to loads of those so if you would like to join matthew become a patron support this podcast it's patreon.com slash gaming in the wild and i will put a link in the show notes for that and with all of that said let's move on to the featured game of the episode tron identity So Tron Identity is by Bithel Games, the creators of Thomas Wars Alone, and more recently The Solitaire Conspiracy, both of which I have covered on the show to some degree. I've also covered Subsurface Circular, the visual novel, the science fiction visual novel, that is perhaps the most closely comparable Bithel game to Tron Identity. It is a visual novel, so you're going to spend a lot of time reading, but it has a very nice visual style to it. There are some choice elements and branching paths for people that like that kind of thing, and a little puzzle game as well. Um, Some of that worked, some of that didn't for me, I'll be getting into why. Uh, Metacritic has this one at 71 on PC and 77 for Switch. I played it on Switch. Um, It did not have a couple of things that I would have liked. Um, You can rescale the text, but it begins at the highest size, and it was still a little small, it still strained my eyes a little bit, and it didn't use the touch screen. Um, despite using a cursor sometimes, which is a mystifying decision for Switch. So, not a a great Switch port. Um, I would play this one on PC if you are at all sensitive to text size. Um, How Long to Beat has this one at three hours, but it's from a very small sample size. I think I got through it in about 1.5 in my first playthrough. I then played it again out of curiosity to see where the branching paths went, and that one took about an hour. And the developers described the game by saying, something has been taken. Enter a new grid and forge alliances via visual novel gameplay, uncovering truths through identity disc puzzles. Make critical decisions and plot your own course in a world without a creator. And I say about this one, it's an atmospheric Tron Universe detective story set in a single building over the course of a rainy night. The presentation nails Tron's singular aesthetic, but the story is over before it has really begun. Um, And I think I will start this one by talking a little bit about the scenario. Um, You play as a program called Query. You are a detective. You have been summoned to a building called The Repository, a big forbidding building. The whole world in this game looks so good. It's so Tron. All of that neon blue and yellow and green um, and all of that inky black and midnight blue. 
just that very vivid look. Um, so the game begins when you're outside the repository, you're walking towards it. Um, it's a secretive building, it houses information and secrets. It's kind of a library of secrets. And there's been an explosion inside. Um, it's up to you to investigate, figure out what happened, um, talk to people, uh, choose sides to some degree. You can favour people, you can have suspects and treat them accordingly, that kind of thing. Um, but as a detective, you have a code of non-interference. You're supposed to observe and divine facts and not to be an active participant in events. And there are going to be moments in this game that make you challenge that, where you might want to take a more active role. So it's a choice-based visual novel. Um, and the way that you're going to make your way through this game is by talking to people, making choices, and playing a card-based minigame. Um, I think that that description might have made the game sound a little more juicy than it was in practice. Um, I said up front that it's a detective story, and that's because you aren't really asked to do any detecting in this game. The story kind of takes you where it's going to go, and there are choices that you can make along the way that, that can be... Um, ostensibly impactful, but maybe you don't feel that way. Um, you can get varied outcomes, um, but how impactful these outcomes are uh, was a bit of a problem for me. Uh, more of that in a while. Um, so how this game looks, you navigate a handful of locations inside the repository. It's like a Nakatomi Plaza kind of thing. Um, and when you're in a room, you see that room. Uh, when you are on the map, you see the side of the building. And there are five different, five or six, five or six different locations that you can go to. Each of those is a little dot that's radiating to draw your eye to it. Uh, for example, the lobby or the library. Um, and you click on one of those and then you go into a cinematic set of shots within the room. Um, you will see your character, but they're not animated. They are sort of stopped mid-motion, like mid-stride. But if you move the stick around, um, they, it is loosely 3D looking, so the room will respond to you. It's like you can guide the camera a little to the left, a little to the right. It just brings it to life just a little bit. Um, there's a little bit of animation in these shots. Um, and as you progress dialogue, which is most of what you're going to be doing as, as a visual novel, um, the shot will change. So you might see a top-down shot that's very Blade Runner-ish that then cuts to a wide-angle view of a room with the person that you're going to talk to standing on a, a platform above you up some steps. And then when you talk to them, it will cut into them and you'll get like a little portrait of them. Um, it's, it's quite cool. It's quite dynamic. I would say that much like Subsurface Circular was quite visually interesting for a visual novel, like seeing all these robots. That one is set in the uh, in a single carriage of a tube train. And you see, you see robots getting on and off at different stops. You can talk to them and you have to untangle a mystery from the confines of this tube train. This one has a similar um, dynamic feel to it, but you are moving through these different locations. I, I liked all of the shots. I thought it was cinematic. I thought it was all very well-framed. Um, the locations were all very cool. Some of them were very visually striking. There was a library in particular that is quite beautiful. And maybe a, a way to understand this is that it's like you're looking at a series of frames from a very flashy modern-day video game comic book, almost. Um, there are also sometimes things to click on in a scene. So you can see those dots that I talked about, those radiating dots. If you click on that, you might get an entry into your codex. You have to notice them, because if you're uh, clicking through the game quite quickly, then they can fly by and you move on to the next scene. You don't get another chance to click on them. Um, but it's all just colour and flavour text, really. Um, when you talk to people, I really like this part. You see an animated portrait of them in front of you. And these look great. I loved seeing the, the faces of the character, and they, they idle slightly. They have these really cool idle animations. 
Um, there is no voice acting in this game, so it is just text, but it's lovely to see the characters standing in front of you. Um, they have bright eyes, they have those Tron colours and pulsing through their clothing. They have a little bit of movement, um, just enough to, to take you there. Um, there's not a huge amount of characterization in these portraits. They are a little bland, you could say. Like, they're not, they're not screaming personality. But it was enough of a visual distraction to take me into the game a little bit more, and that super cool Tron palette made them shine through. Um, the whole game does a great job at evoking the feeling of Tron, of walking through this digital universe where you're talking to data that has formed itself into shapes. And some of the conversations that you have go quite deep into the lore of Tron um, and into why data might shape itself this way, how this society is organised. So there's, there's some good colour there and some good feel for fans of Tron, that's for sure. So I would say that the, the big strength of Tron Identity is the visual design and the audio design. The music is really good. It is by Dan Lassac, a musician that you may have heard of. And, and Dan Lassac does a great job at evoking the, the technoir mood and the, the dramatic sweep and sadness of this rainy um, neon digital world. Um, and the characters are quite interesting too. There aren't many of them. You will meet Grish, the first person that you meet, a truculent head of security who has the building in lockdown. You will meet Prince, the zealous facility head. You will meet Ada, an information gardener, and the, uh, the head of the library, and a couple of others as well. Everyone is a suspect, pretty much, so you question them all. You will come back to them repeatedly. Um, so these characters, you don't get a lot of time with them, but they are all distinct. They do all sort of represent different aspects of what this society and what this building is all about. Um, you meet them in only a handful of locations that you'll return to often. The lobby, the library, the vault, the rooftop, the office. That's kind of your lot. Um, and I would say that when I first started playing this game, I felt very optimistic. I loved the visual style, I loved the music, the production values were off the charts. But when I realised the scope of the game, that there are five locations and six characters, I felt really bummed out. I was like, oh, that's it. It's, it's very small. This is a very, very small game. Um, so it's a very intriguing world and a very interesting world. I was hoping that this building was just the start of my journey, that I would be going out into the world that these characters talk about sometimes. Um, but I realized quickly that I'd pretty much seen all of the game's spaces within the first 20 minutes, which was really disappointing. It's a, a frustratingly tiny slice of a very pretty and super interesting world. There is also a minigame to play in the game. This is where you as a detective, you can take discs from other programs um, and all of the discs have been somewhat fragmented for story reasons that you have to untangle as part of the story. Um, and when they hand you the disc, you're supposed to defragment them to open up their memories, memories that they have lost. Um, you have to have permission to do so. So it's always this little dance of talking to people about 
um, what the, what it means that you are about to defragment their memories. And um, the way that this presents is it's a little mini game. It's a card game. It's a kind of a circular solitaire variant. And um, the cards are very, very, very small. There is a circle in the middle of the screen, and it is lined with cards that um, trace the circumference of the circle. Um, they're in four different suits. I think I think it's four. Um, each one has a number on it from zero up to nine. Um, you can match cards, but you can only match a card with uh, one that is either immediately adjacent to it or three spaces away. So there are rules to this game. Um, they are explained. It does walk you through it. Um, it was a little bit confusing to me at first. Um, I didn't take to it intuitively. The instructions were clear, but the game was just not intuitive. So I had to read all of those instructions a couple of times to really get it, uh, which frustrated me at first. Uh, but you're matching cards by suit or by number, and only in those specific uh, distances that you can move each card. I will say I didn't like this card game. I felt that it was a little shallow, a little unintuitive. I bumbled through most of these puzzles largely without trying, um, they are skippable, and in my second playthrough, I just skipped them. There was no real uh, reward that I could see. Sometimes it seems like you're getting a cosmetic um, reward at the end. It will say that you've unlocked, for example, a disc color. Um, you do also unlock memories, but I think you unlock the memories whether you skip or not, although I could be wrong about that. Um, but if you can skip these games, then really what is the point of them being there? Um, as the gameplay element, the single uh, gameplay element of a visual novel. This this has to be good, um, and the game was a fail for me. There is also an endless mode of this game, and I have seen people online praising this game, so it seems to work for some people, but I found that it was a little obscure, a little unintuitive, and that I could bumble through it without even trying, really. Um, you can also undo moves, so if you dead-end yourself, you can undo moves um, as many as you want, um, and you can also get the computer to play for you three times. So the game is really trying to help you get through it and to not be a roadblock, um, but it ended up just feeling a little insignificant to me. Um, it looks the part. You do, you know, it does look like a hacking game, just what you want to see in a, a Tron game. Um, but it was just not a good hacking game. Um, and yeah, I skipped most of it. Um, the other big thing in the gameplay, obviously, is the mystery. Um, there is a mystery here. And I won't solve it for you, and I won't spoil it here, but you are walked through all of the major beats of the story. Um, I played twice and took almost opposite choices just to see what would happen. I was curious about how far this story branches. Um, the outcomes were different. Um, some choices are life or death, and you do get a different outcome at the end. But in a strange way, um, I arrived at the same point um, and I felt like none of it really impacted anything. Um, so I ended up thinking that the choices in this game were not really significant. They didn't feel weighty to me. Like, even though you're making life or death choices, the outcomes themselves that occur um, did not change the way that I felt, did not change the way that I thought about this story or any of the characters, really. Um, I, it made me think about games like Paradise Killer. This is another detective game. But in, in Paradise Killer, you question um, your suspects several times. That's a 3D game, though, so you get to explore a world, you get to pick up lore, all of that stuff. In a visual novel, obviously, you're just getting that from the visuals and the sound. Um, but it, Paradise Killer has a very effective detective mechanic where um, speech is marked in different ways. You can kind of pre preempt the choices that you're making, the answers that you're going to get, the results you're going to get, 
when you question people, that might open up another question with someone else, and that is all mapped for you. So you really do feel like you're solving a case. And the really cool thing about Paradise Killer is that at the end of that game, which you can trigger anytime you want to, you go to court and you carry out a case. Um, you set, you use the evidence that you've gathered to try and um, play out what happened in the, the central mystery of that game. Very, very effective, very, very engaging, very, very cool. Um, you, they let you sort of theory craft and, and whatever you decide kind of becomes canon. Like even if you know that you've pushed one piece of evidence too far or that you were missing one against someone else, like uh, actually getting to the truth is a very active and engaged process. There is nothing anywhere near that ambitious in this game. Um, I felt that I was just shepherded through the game. And I guess it is a visual novel and not a detective game. But for a game that leans so heavily on this feeling of mystery and noir and casts you so firmly in the detective role, I might have liked just a little more gameplay in my my role as a detective. Um, I also thought about the game Signs of the Sojourner when I was playing this game, which is almost a visual novel itself. Um, you're talking to people a lot. The, the, the gameplay mechanic in Signs of the Sojourner is that you play a symbol-matching card game, and the outcome of your conversation depends on whether or not you've enough of the right symbol to reach a chord with the person that you're talking to, and you may or may not get a sympathetic reaction or more essential information or even objects from them. So the gameplay is woven into the fabric of the story in Signs of the Sojourner very, very effectively. Fully recommend both of those games, by the way. If you haven't played Paradise Killer or Signs of the Sojourner, um, please do play them. They're really good games. And in Signs of the Sojourner as well, they did a lot with a little. The characters were lovable. Just those few lines that make up their facial expressions and the way that their characters were written um, won me over in seconds. In, in Tron Identity, it lacks that kind of charm, lacks that kind of engagement. Um, I didn't feel sympathetic to or connected to or like I had gotten to know or even really interested in many of the characters. Um, and I think that that affected my my sense of engagement with this story. So while it looked very cool um, and I loved looking at it and I loved moving through the world, listening to it and looking at it, I didn't really feel anything when characters made it or didn't make it or whether I um, had favoured someone and seen the, the fruits of that friendship and that kind of thing. None of it seemed to really matter to me. Um, and that might seem like a writing issue, but the writing is neat and tidy. It's, um, it's well done. It's certainly not bad. It is crisp. It gets things across to you. It does imbue the characters with a certain amount of personality. And thinking about it, maybe the coldness and the distance... Um, of these characters is supposed to lean into this aesthetic of being somewhere digital, talking to programs and not people. If that is the case, then that was achieved, but at the expense of my investment as a player. Um, I would say that not really caring about the outcomes and not feeling connected to these characters um, in either playthrough really was a bit of an indictment on this game. Um, no matter how solid its component pieces are, and no matter how well it expresses uh, the Tron series and the Tron universe, uh, there was something about this game that just left me a little too cold.
So to go through the good points and bad points about this game, I would say that the, the single best thing about it is the look. Um, it is very authentic to the original Tron. If you are a fan of the Tron universe, you're going to feel some delight here. I certainly felt like I was stepping through the looking glass into um, an environment that I found visually compelling and just, just straight compelling actually. A uh, big fan of the Tron universe. Um, it's neon, it's dreamlike, it's like 1980s cyber futurism. It's just so cool, it's seminal, it's singular, and the game does an absolutely fantastic job of of summoning up that world and evoking that world. Um, if you have seen the original Tron film, um, there are references to it here as well. There are Easter eggs for people that like Tron. Um, so it does a great job of evoking the Tron world visually, um, in the music, in the lore. All of that is great. Uh, what few locations there are, are interesting and atmospheric. The library was wonderful. The views that you get out across the, the city and um, the conversations that you have about why there is a city at all, uh, why data, why programs form themselves in this way, why they organize in human ways. Um, all of that stuff is talked about here, and it is um, off-passing interest, but it's over very quickly. Uh, the music is just wonderful. It's sort of synthetic, orchestral. It's atmospheric. I loved some of the electronic ambience. Um, it's layered, so there are parts added to tracks as you move through dialogue, as conversations might get more fraught. Um, or more personal, or more revealing, you will get additional layers being dropped onto the music that makes it feel like the world is responding to you. It gives it a sense of dramatic heft. Um, the cinematography of all the shots is great too. Um, so it really does add up to quite a cinematic proposition. Um, a lot of really great work has been done on this game. Um, the writing is, is decent, and it is a taut, crisply told story. But as for the negatives, this game is, is way too short. Um, by the time you're settling in, it's over. I was disappointed by the, the lack of more locations um, and a longer story to get invested in. I didn't have enough time with the characters to get invested in them or to get to know them, really. Um, it's just a few minutes here, a few minutes there. You're spending just less than five minutes with these characters, I think, and that's really not enough time for you to care about how the story turns out. Um, it feels more like the first chapter of a story or an introduction to a new story than the finished article. Um, if this was a science fiction book, I feel like this would be, you know, the intro and the first chapter, um, and then you'd be on into the bigger world. It ends on a cliffhanger, which suggests to me that maybe um, it's intended to be the first in a series, but if so, I wish that that was indicated. If I had known that this was the first chapter of a story, I might have looked on it more kindly. Um, and I get that it's focused. You know, Subsurface Circular was also very focused. Uh, Thomas was alone, very, very scoped. I think that Mike Bithell scopes his games very carefully, but I think in this specific instance, this game was underscoped um, to the, at the expense of it being a satisfying experience. Um, it's not a great Switch version. The text size is a problem. doesn't use the touchscreen. Um, I would say that sometimes I made story decisions that I didn't feel to be clear when I made them, so I got um, unpredictable or unwanted uh, responses sometimes based on my decisions. Never something that I like. For example, in Detroit Become Human, when you do reach a consequential decision, it's marked so you know to give it extra attention. Um, if you're playing visual novels, you will often, if, at least if you're me, you'll fall into a rhythm of cycling text quite quickly, almost skimming it unless it really grabs you. And so for consequential decisions not to be marked as you're skimming through a lot of visual novel text, um, and for the outcomes to be unpredictable based on decisions that you have made, 
um, is a problem to me, um, a big problem in this game. So the story decision points didn't feel that clear. Uh, the minigame isn't good, um, um, and that's a big problem too. So there's a lot to like about Tron Identity, and I don't particularly like giving it a negative review. <laughs> the, um, the production values are sky high, and maybe this isn't a negative review, maybe I'm giving it a fair shake, but overall I found this to be a frustrating game. Uh, not to play, but in its smallness. It's concise to the point of being an abrupt story. It's like a short story. There are good ingredients here, but it doesn't follow them through. It doesn't do enough with them. Um, I'm glad to have seen the art. I'm glad to have heard the music, but the choices that I made along the way didn't feel meaningful, or rather, even if they were meaningful, the outcomes didn't feel meaningful. The events they caused didn't hang together into a larger story or anything dramatically impactful or thematically um, cogent. Um, so I think the game does interesting things, but I don't really know what the story was trying to do. And that is a shame for a game this slick and glossy in a universe this intriguing for it to just fall short in those all-important regards. Um, so that was my take on Tron Identity. So that was Tron Identity. Hope you enjoyed the review. I hope that it sounded like I gave it a fair shake. Um, I feel like I did. I did play the game twice, and partly because after my first playthrough, I was like, there was so much awesomeness in that game, and yet I've come away with such a sour taste in my mouth. Um, so I waited until the next day, and I thought, well, it's a short game. I can just sit back in bed, and like before I go to sleep, I'll just power through the story one more time. I did like it more the second time, because I knew what I was getting myself into. I knew how short it was. Um, and like I said, spending more time with characters makes you care about them more, um, makes you invest more. So maybe that second playthrough gave me a little bit more of what I needed to make me care about how this story turned out. But I would like very much to hear what you think of Tron Identity, if you've played it, if you're thinking of playing it, if you've played any of the other Bithel games, if you have any uh, responses to the things that I've made, the points I've made about visual novels, about um, character investment in video games, about Signs of the Sojourner, all of that kind of thing. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Gaming in the Wild. I'm also on Instagram, YouTube, Twitch, elsewhere. You can join the Patreon if you would like to come and join our Discord server and talk to me and all of the other patrons about the games that we're playing. That's patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. Link in the, uh, in the show notes for that. If you are watching on YouTube, please do like the video. Um, feel free to share it as well. Share the video, share the podcast, tell a friend. Really appreciate all of that stuff. I'll be back next week with a new episode, maybe about Horizon, maybe about one of those other cool indie games that I've got lined up. I feel like it's maybe time to get into Storyteller and time to have a go on Have a Nice Death. So lots of interesting games coming up. Thanks very much for listening. Take care of yourselves and each other, and bye-bye for now. <laughs>